You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Mystery of Death. Fifteen lectures, translated by Simon Blaxland de Lange. This is Lecture 7, given in Vienna on the 7th of May, 1915, entitled Cosmic Influences Upon the Members of Man's Being, The Occult Foundation of the Christmas Festival, The Significance of Sacrificial Death. It is my intention in the course of these days to bring you something from the standpoint of spiritual science that can shed some light upon the great events of our time. This coming Sunday, therefore, it will also be my task to direct our attention toward certain themes which can cast light upon these events that so deeply move our hearts and souls at this present time. My purpose today is to establish a preparatory foundation by guiding you toward an awareness of certain powers and forces that are active in the historical life of humanity, but which can only be recognized through those insights that spiritual science is able to give and are not directly perceptible to ordinary everyday consciousness. I shall make reference today to certain facts of human development, working at a more or less subconscious level, as they come to expression in the course of human history. But as you know from what is described in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? We should be aware from the outset that what takes place in the hidden depths of every human being can be discerned in successive stages of supersensible knowledge, in so-called imaginative knowledge, inspirative knowledge, and intuitive knowledge. In yesterday's public lecture, I have already emphasized that it must always be borne in mind that the spiritual scientist who reveals something about the spiritual worlds as a result of imaginative, inspirative, and intuitive perceptions does not bring anything that does not already exist, even without his knowledge, in those spiritual regions in which every soul dwells. The spiritual scientist only draws attention to what lives and weaves in the world and to how the individual human soul finds its place there. Hence, such knowledge is important, not only for those who intend to penetrate into the stream of occult experiences, but also for every human soul, in that it constitutes an inner reality under all circumstances, albeit one that cannot be recognized by ordinary, everyday perception. I should like to begin by mentioning a few facts about human nature that have arisen from imaginative perception. We observe on a daily basis an enigmatic process, enigmatic, that is, to ordinary science, that takes place in our life in rhythmic alternation, waking and sleeping. We are well familiar with the idea that in the waking state we belong to the physical earthly world with our four bodily members, the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, and the ego. We know that while we are asleep, thus from going to sleep until waking up, we are in the physical world only with our physical body and our etheric body. 
and that our astral body and ego have, as it were, withdrawn into the purely spiritual world. We can characterize what presents itself to the spiritual perception of the spirit researcher by saying that the spirit researcher sees what, for example, takes place whenever a person leaves his physical and etheric bodies on going to sleep and enters into the region of the higher world with his astral body and ego. The spirit researcher simply perceives what happens every time that someone goes to sleep. We can therefore say that the spirit researcher only observes what would present itself to every human soul if it could look down upon the world not in a dreaming state, but in the state of dreamless sleep, and thereby find among the things of the world its physical and etheric bodies as something existing outside the sleeping soul. Now, we should not imagine that from the standpoint of sleep we see our physical and etheric bodies, which we have left behind in the same way that we perceive what surrounds us in the physical world with our physical eyes. In order to see what surrounds us in the way that we perceive it from waking up until going to sleep, we have to use our physical eyes, our physical sense organs. We do not use them when we are outside the physical and etheric bodies. If we were suddenly to become clairvoyant while we were asleep, we would not perceive anything of what we see while we are awake as it is in our waking state. Moreover, we do not perceive our physical and etheric bodies in the way that we behold our physical form when we look at a mirror. It is totally wrong if one thinks that one perceives the physical and etheric bodies as if one's astral body and ego were bending over them. This is not the case. What presents itself to imaginative knowledge, and I really mean imaginative knowledge, is that everything that we are accustomed to seeing in the waking state ultimately disappears. It momentarily vanishes. Moreover, as we perceive our physical and etheric bodies, they appear to us not as they are in the waking state, but as though expanded into a world. They appear to us as connected with the whole of the earthly world. We behold them. We are aware that we are looking at our physical and etheric bodies. But we behold them in such a way that they initially, as it were, constitute for us the only world there is. Just as in our waking state we are surrounded by mountains, rivers and clouds, sun and stars and so on, and look upon them as our environment, So when we are outside our physical and etheric bodies and look upon our surroundings, we behold these physical and etheric bodies of ours as though extended into a world. We do not perceive anything else. We behold this as we otherwise look upon the various objects of our earth. We look upon our own bodily nature as upon a whole world. Remarkably, This world that we behold is such that when we fall asleep, we experience it as we experience the earth in spring, when, after it has been liberated from its winter mantle of snow, it brings forth green shoots, when it once more prepares itself for growth, when everything begins to sprout and germinate again. As when we fall asleep we behold the physical and etheric bodies enlarged into a world, We see them in such a way that we experience them as a planet that is awakening in the spring. 
This continues throughout the state of sleep. The mighty pictures that appear to us in their extension as a planet prepare to pass over into summer, just as the earth prepares to pass into summer when spring comes to an end. This is how we experience sleep, if we live through it in the right way. While we are asleep, we reach the point that we feel that our physical and etheric bodies are bringing the process of budding and sprouting to the blossoming state and indeed to the forming of fruit. Everywhere we find everything growing and flourishing. To be quite specific, I have to say that what presents itself to imaginative perception has something paradoxical about it. Whereas with our physical perception we survey the surface of the earth and we are aware that what is growing there reaches upward from below, when we observe from outside what is going on with our body and compare this with the plant world, it is as though its roots were penetrating into our body from above and its blossoms were growing into it. We therefore experience a world that is completely upside down and fruits grow into us. We then discover that these fruits which penetrate into us are bringing to expression the strengthening that we are aware that sleep brings to us. Through this we know, and indeed, what we behold thus in imagination are actual forces, that our physical and etheric bodies receive forces from the whole cosmos while we are in a state of sleep. We behold how forces that express themselves in the forming of plants growing forth from the world come from the cosmos. We see that the cosmos transmits a whole vegetation into our bodily nature. And we then acquire the sure knowledge that when we go to sleep we leave our body, because from waking up until falling asleep our astral body and ego withdraw our physical and etheric bodies from the influences of the forces of the cosmos. By going out in this way, we free up our physical and etheric bodies for the influences of the whole cosmos, which sends these forces, whose nature is elemental rather than physical, into us as expressed in the imaginations described. Thus every time we go to sleep, a connection is formed between the physical and etheric bodies and the whole cosmos. Whereas in the waking state we live in the physical world, during sleep our physical and etheric bodies live in what we call the elemental world, the world of pure forces that is represented in the imaginations that have been described. And where are we ourselves with our ego and astral body? This has been frequently described and it has also been recounted in several of my books. With our ego and astral body, we are in the world that has been referred to as the world of the higher hierarchies among the beings we call Angeloi, Archangeloi, Archai, and so forth. The ego and astral body immerse themselves in these beings and their world. Just as during our waking state we know of the beings of the animal world, the plant world and the mineral world and, as it were, preside over this world as human beings by taking them into our thoughts, so are we received as thoughts by the beings of the higher hierarchies. Just as we think nature, so do the beings of the higher hierarchies think us. 
Hence, to be precise, it is not correct to say that when we leave the physical body we bear the world in our thoughts. A more correct way of describing our experience is to say that we are being thought by the world of the higher hierarchies. As a thought would experience itself during waking life, if it had consciousness, so would we have to experience ourselves as the thoughts of higher beings when we are outside our physical body. And how is the moment of waking up experienced by our imaginative knowledge? As we gradually approach the moment of waking up, we do indeed experience it, and we can again compare the imagination with outward nature as the arrival of winter with its destructive and paralyzing effect on the budding and sprouting life of summer. And just as winter brings frost and cold over the earth and destroys the glory of summer, so do we immerse ourselves into our physical and etheric bodies. In the same way that winter brings the destruction of the glories of summer, so as we wake up do we bring the destruction of the forces that entered into our physical and etheric bodies from the elemental world of the cosmos, as a vegetative growth, or from the animal world. And while we are awake, our presence in our physical and etheric bodies brings them into a state comparable to the conditions in which the cosmos places the earth when it is winter. We spread winter over our own physical and etheric being when we enter into it. You also see from this that what is often used as a comparison derived from physical circumstances, is not applicable to a spiritual perception. To be sure, people have the feeling that they are connected with the whole cosmos, and that in a certain sense what they experience is a microcosmic reflection of the macrocosm. But when they actually want to compare something in their microcosmic lives with the life of the macrocosm, they like to say, that waking up is like the arrival of spring into our life. Waking life is like summer. And autumn is the fatigue that descends on us in the evening. Sleep is like winter. The reality is the exact opposite. Summer is the life of sleep. Winter is waking life. That is the truth of the matter. When the spirit researcher really investigates these relationships, he finds that while his ego and astral body rise into the regions of the higher hierarchies and are thought by higher beings, not only does that which derives from the elemental world influence his physical and etheric bodies, but certain beings of the higher hierarchies also work right into our physical and etheric bodies. Not only is it the elemental world consisting of forces, but actual beings, beings of the higher hierarchies, that are active in our physical and etheric bodies. And what is remarkable is that we can be aware that at the moment when we go to sleep, we enter into conditions that are quite different from those that prevail while we are awake. As said, everything that can be expressed in this way is based upon the fact that spiritual research enables us to contemplate the processes of going to sleep and waking up. And it then becomes apparent to it that that being from the higher hierarchies whom we must experience as the folk spirit, the folk soul to whom we belong, is influencing our physical and etheric bodies. When a person wakes up, 
he not only dives down into his physical and etheric bodies, but also into the processes that take place in his physical and etheric bodies as a result of what his folk spirit brings about. The remarkable thing is that I beg you to note this well, for it behooves those of us who want to penetrate into spiritual science to study the connections between things more deeply than is possible for ordinary outward perception. When someone goes to sleep, he not only dives down into those beings of the higher hierarchies that correspond to his individual development, but also into such spiritual beings as we must regard as folk spirits. Moreover, from going to sleep until waking up, he immerses himself in the connections of all folk spirits other than his own. So let us note this carefully. While we are awake, we live immersed in the spiritual facts that our own folk spirit enacts in our physical and etheric bodies. We live, as it were, together with our own folk spirit from waking up until going to sleep. But in addition to our folk spirit, there are all the other folk spirits of the other peoples. When we go to sleep, we become immersed in the connections of the other folk spirits. Not in one other individual folk spirit, bear this strictly in mind, but in what they accomplish together, what they accomplish in association as a community. Only our own folk spirit is excluded from this context during the night. We cannot avoid having a connection with all those folk spirits belonging to the other peoples in which we are not incarnated in a particular incarnation. For in that we belong to our folk spirit when we are awake, we belong to the other folk spirits when we are asleep, though only to their interaction with one another. When we are awake, we belong to the intentions of the particular folk spirit in whose realm we were born in a specific incarnation. But there is a means, also during sleep, of becoming immersed in the being of one other particular folk spirit. Whereas we normally live within our own folk spirit together with his activity when we are awake, and in sleep in the interaction between the other folk spirits. We can dive down when we are asleep into one particular folk spirit if we acquire in life a really burning hatred of what this other folk spirit brings about. However grotesque it may sound, it is nevertheless true, and in our movement we must be able to cope calmly with such truths, that if someone feels from his innermost being so intense a hatred toward another people, he condemns himself to sleeping with the folk spirit of this people during the night, to being together with it. Here we are dealing with truths with respect to which we can see that behind the veil that conceals the spiritual worlds for ordinary observation, life begins to acquire a deeply serious character, and that it is in a certain sense uncomfortable to be an adherent of spiritual science. For spiritual science begins to approach with a considerable degree of seriousness certain matters from points of view that people find uncomfortable and from which we are mercifully spared through the fact that life in the ordinary sense does not reveal them to us. Although we must, of course, 
stand fully in outer life on the ground that this outer life demands of us, we must regard such a principle with full seriousness. If we raise ourselves in the realm of spiritual science to those realms where other facets of life begin to reveal themselves. In the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, it is stated that in the moment when one rises into the spiritual world, and every human being is in the spiritual world, it is only a question of acquiring knowledge of what is always there, that comfortable unity of human nature in which we live in the physical world ceases to exist. Divisions arise within it, but apart from those divisions that are mentioned there in which one can observe, after the meeting with the guardian of the threshold, many other divisions appear, including one that is of deep significance for our whole life of feeling. We should recognize that while in a particular incarnation we must fully do our duty toward the people to which we belong and offer it our unstinting love, this national entity plays its part in the whole evolutionary process of the earth. We must be clear that in that we are, through our ego and astral body, also spiritual beings. We belong to the whole of mankind and should share our impulses with humanity as a whole. It is not the case that spiritual science allows us to live in a one-sided attitude. We must be able to bring the two sides of our being into full harmony with one another. We must be clear that even though as people of our present incarnation we can, while being spiritual scientists, identify lovingly with our own people, just as anyone can love his national heritage, we must bring this feeling into harmony with what unites us with the whole of mankind. Spiritual science emphasizes, in a particular way, this leading us into ever greater unity with humanity as a whole, because it reveals to us that through our ego and astral body we are connected with the whole of mankind. It increasingly demands of someone who dedicates himself to it with heart and soul that he creates harmony between opposites. It would be disastrous if one were to confuse true spiritual science with that vague mysticism that would forever like to combine the needs of outward physical life with that to which we must aspire by reaching into the spiritual world. For that vague mysticism which would seek to bring into ordinary life the things which spiritual science reveals in their true light will, for example, never be able to bring the love of one's own nation into harmony with love for the whole of mankind and will lead to a vague, mystical cosmopolitanism. One can, as I have already done, compare this with what nebulous-minded theosophists are forever saying about equality and about the equal values of all religions of the earth. To be sure, one can say in abstract terms, all religions of the earth contain the truth. But that is exactly the same thing as saying that on the table there are pepper, salt, and paprika, and all sorts of other things. And all these are condiments. Sugar, pepper, salt, and paprika, they are all the same. So I put paprika in the coffee and sugar in the soup, because they are all condiments. Those who blather in a vague mystical way about the unified essence of all religions, instead of penetrating into the true nature of each one, as it appears in our earthly evolution, are basing themselves on the same point of logic. 
It is not a question of constantly saying that all peoples are merely the expressions of the universally human, but rather that we recognize the specific tasks that the various peoples are given by their folk souls. Some indications in this direction were given in the lecture cycle, which was printed some time ago and was held several years before the outbreak of the war. And since the lectures were not given under the influence of the war, it cannot be said that they resulted from impressions of the war, titled The Mission of the Individual Folk Souls in Connection with Northern Germanic Mythology. It is important, especially in our time, to reflect about such serious things as this, so that harmony between universally human love and the love of one's own people can be found. One does not need to shy away from characterizing the particular qualities of an individual nation, insofar as it is a nation. The individual human being always rises above his nation. However, as is apparent from the observations that I have already made, this must, of course, be done without any hatred. Just as little as one recognizes the true nature of individual plants, if one hates the plant and describes the hatred that one feels, so is one unable to recognize the qualities of a nation if one describes what one hates about this people or if one incorporates in one's description what comes out of feelings of hatred. Moreover, it must be the constant endeavor of those who are able to rise to the viewpoints of spiritual science not to see the nature of the world in a uniform singularity, but in the harmony of its manifold characteristics. A person must be able to feel every possible warmth for his own people, a warmth that does not need to be any less than that of someone who does not aspire to spiritual science, while, on the other hand, he should be able to unite this with everything that brings us together with the whole of mankind, to which we belong as one great all-encompassing being. As already stated, we shall turn to matters such as this the day after tomorrow. What I want to say now is that as we pass from our waking state into that of sleep and are therefore received by the beings of the higher hierarchies, we at the same time cast off that which connects us with our particular incarnation through our physical and etheric bodies. In sleep, we therefore also cast off our national character. Through sleep, we become simply human beings, human beings with all the qualities that we must have through the experiences that we have had as human beings. If, as spirit researchers, we observe what is happening with a person, both when he is awake and asleep, we perceive that when he is asleep, his ego and astral body are living in the spiritual world, just as his physical and etheric bodies also belong to the great world, that this personal life, which, as it were, takes its course within our skin, ceases, and that we extend ourself to the great self. Now, consider that in the course of 24 hours we actually experience a summer and a winter state. The earth also passes through these summer and winter states, but the earth traverses them in the course of a year. Why does the earth pass through these states over a year? Because the earth is a being as we ourselves are, though at a different hierarchic stage. The whole earth, if we observe it physically as it is around us, 
is the body of the earth. And just as we bear within ourselves a soul and spirit, so does the earth also have its soul-spiritual aspect. The difference is merely that we wake up and go to sleep in the course of twenty-four hours, while the earth wakes and sleeps in the course of the year. It is awake from autumn until spring and sleeps during the summer. Thus we can say that during the summer we are living embedded in the sleeping earth, and during the winter we live embedded in the waking earth. It is not true that the earth is awake in summer and asleep in winter, as we can say in the trivial comparison taken from ordinary life. The truth is that when autumn comes the earth wakes up as a soul-spiritual being and is most awake in the middle of winter. The earth spirit is most deeply immersed in thought in the middle of winter and it begins gradually to cease thinking with the approach of spring and it sleeps when outer life is budding and sprouting. The earth spirit is asleep during summer. As human bodies we are not only connected through our physical body with the body of the earth but we are also connected with the spirit of the earth. We know through various lectures that Through the mystery of Golgotha, the Spirit, whom we call the Spirit of Christ, united himself with the Spirit of the earth. Since the mystery of Golgotha, the Christ Spirit has lived within the Spirit of the earth. Consequently, if people want to celebrate a festival that would express to them that the Christ Spirit is within the Spirit of the earth, at what time would they have to mark this festival? They would have to place the festival not in the summer but in the winter. This is the Christmas festival. It is for this reason that the Christmas festival and what develops from it is celebrated in winter. This derived from a true knowledge which in former times fixed the ordering of the Christian year. The Christmas festival was laid down in accordance with occult truths and not with historical facts, because as regards what now constitutes humanity, man is united with the most fully awake condition of earth existence, in that his soul-spiritual aspect is embedded in the soul and spirit of the earth during the winter. In the winter he lives together with the waking earth. And what will people in former times, who, as we know, base their service and knowledge of the world upon a kind of dreamlike clairvoyance, have done? they must primarily have appealed to what lives in the sleeping earth spirit, to when the earth spirit is for the most part asleep and has withdrawn into a state of sleep. In contrast to people of modern times, they must have been inspired by the truths that flowed to them in an unconscious way as best befitted them. Among the peoples whose cults and knowledge were drawn from a more sleeping, dreaming state, we therefore find in the middle of summer the St. John's Festival, the Summer Festival, in contrast to the Christmas Festival, which is suited to a more modern humanity. What has been continued outwardly, and what our materialistic age no longer understands, has its deep foundation in a spiritual reality. Now we live in an age when people must again begin to think and feel in a completely different way from what was the case in the former period. This former period 
had the task of making the realm of materialistic thinking and feeling accessible to human beings. And the last few centuries that human souls have been living through have indeed brought this about. Earthly evolution had to pass through this materialistic epoch. It is not good if we only have harsh criticism for materialism, for it had to make its appearance in earthly evolution. But now we are living in a time when materialism must be overcome, when spiritual perception must come once more to human souls. This is the more or less clear and indistinct feeling of all those who feel drawn in their own soul to our spiritual scientific endeavors, to our spiritual scientific world conception, that they feel that now is the time when the spiritual world, which had formerly to be perceived in a dreamlike way, must be grasped consciously. Spiritual science exists for this very purpose. The period that has now elapsed was that of materialism. And because humanity had to immerse itself in materialism, the strong impulse that leads it up again had to be active quite specifically through the age of materialism. This is the Christ impulse. When the Christ impulse entered into earthly evolution, the preparation also began. It entered its most active stage in the 14th and 15th centuries. But when the Christ impulse approached, Humanity was preparing to immerse itself in materialism. The Christ impulse existed as an objective fact in world evolution. But the people living in the time when it appeared were least of all able and ready to understand it. We now live in a time when we need to begin to understand what took place then. What do we see from this? We see in evolution, to this point, that the Christ impulse has followed a remarkable course. We see that once it entered into human evolution, through the mystery of Golgotha, this Christ impulse was not understood by those living at the time. Let us try to form for ourselves a picture of what people did in their cleverness. In the first and following centuries after the emergence of the Christ impulse, we find that all manner of theological systems are formulated, that people argue about how they should think of the Trinity, and so on. We see an endless amount of theological quarreling and disputation over the centuries. And it would be the worst possible path to take if one sought from all these theological arguments to understand today how the Christ impulse was exerting its influence. The people who were arguing about their understanding of it did not understand anything of the way in which the Christ impulse belongs within evolution. Let us try to form a clear picture of how its influence became apparent. I should like to present some facts in this connection. Let us take an event that occurred in the 4th century in the year 312 and on 28 October and which completely determined the future map of Europe. This was when Constantine, known as the Great, the son of Constantius Chlorus, marched against Maxentius, the ruler of Rome, and won a victory over him, which led to Christianity also becoming outwardly victorious in the Western world. Constantine then made Christianity the official state religion. But did he manage this out of his own cleverness? 
did what occurred at that time happen out of cleverness at all. We cannot say that this was so. What actually happened? When Maxentius, the Roman emperor, had learned that Constantine was on the march, he first consulted the Sibylline books. He, therefore, set about trying to understand world phenomena in a dreamlike way. What he derived from these books was interpreted to him as follows. The right deed would be done by one who, as the ruler of Rome, would leave the city and fight the battle outside its walls. This was the most improbable advice that could be imagined, for Constantine had a much smaller army than Maxentius and would not have had much success if Maxentius had stayed in Rome. Moreover, it was not the generals in Constantine's army who won the victory. The situation was rather that Constantine had a dream where the symbol of Christ appeared to him, In response to this dream, he ordered that the cross, as Christ's symbol, be carried in front of his armies. He made his subsequent deeds dependent upon the revelations of his dream. This battle, through which the map of Europe was determined at that time, was not decided by the cleverness of human beings or won by the generals, but by dreams and prophecies. Everything in Europe would have taken a different course if things had turned out in accordance with human consciousness and not in accordance with what emanated from unconscious influences that people were not even aware of. Theologians have argued about the nature of Christ, whether he was born in eternity together with the Father, whether he was born in time, whether he is equal to the Father, and so on. In all their thoughts, nothing of the Christ impulse is contained. Rather, was its influence to be found in the subconscious minds of human beings. It worked not through the ego, but through the astral body. The Christ impulse was a reality, and it was active without people needing to understand it. That is the important and essential fact. The way in which Christ has been working is as independent of what people have understood of him as the course of a storm is independent of what people have learned about electric machines or other such things in physical laboratories. The time has now come when we must immerse ourselves consciously in the influence of the Christ impulse. Nevertheless, Christ has always been actively engaged in what has happened historically. Let us turn from this to another example from a later time. For this we need to recall something that I have already explained to you. As regards the time associated with the coming of materialism, it is important to know that if people want to focus their attention upon the spiritual world, it is best to do this in the winter. For this reason, it was always considered that those whose natures are especially gifted for this are endowed with inspirations from the spiritual world during the midwinter nights that have been referred to. Everywhere in folk legends and sagas, it is related how particularly gifted people who do not undergo initiation but are inspired through their own nature, through elemental forces working within them, are inspired during the nights between Christmas Eve and Three Kings' Day, during the thirteen winter nights. There is a very beautiful legend that was discovered in Norway not long ago, the legend of Olaf Astason, 
who goes to church on Christmas Eve and begins to sleep. He sleeps until 6 January, and when he awakes, he is able to tell in imaginations of what has taken place in the soul world and in the spirit land, as we call it. He expresses this in pictures, but he has experienced it during these thirteen nights. Such legends can be found everywhere. They are not really what people think of as legends today, but there have always been gifted people who have experienced a kind of nature initiation through elemental forces working within them, which someone who faithfully follows the indications of the path of initiation can also experience through his own will. Thus we can say, during the age of materialism, there have always been people who, when the spirit of the earth is most awake in the middle of winter, have been able to unite themselves with the spirit of the earth and receive inspirations. This was also the time when the Christ impulse that had united itself with the earth could not work through human consciousness. We should think of especially gifted souls who were receptive to the spiritual world. It turned out that such souls receive the impulses for what they have to accomplish from out of the spiritual world precisely in these thirteen nights before the 6th of January. This had to occur. And it could be seen again and again in both insignificant and significant examples that there have been people in the course of history who were spiritually so endowed that when the right moment arrived for them, as they were living through those thirteen nights in winter, the spiritual impulse, and in this time especially the Christ impulse, entered into them. During the time of materialism, natural initiations, initiations that therefore took place without conscious human activity, have always been most easily enacted during these thirteen nights. And whenever such initiations manifested themselves, we find that they occurred during these thirteen nights. There is one event that even those who have the least inclination to recognize the spiritual world, and very few people are inclined to do so today, will acknowledge that in the fifteenth century spiritual powers visibly entered into the course of history through a young woman, the maid of Orleans. It can also be proved historically that the whole map of Europe was shaped differently through the Maid of Orleans, having helped the French in the war against the English. Anyone who reflects about this can conclude that everything would have turned out differently in accordance with human intentions if the shepherd girl had not intervened. And in this shepherd girl, forces from the spiritual world The maid of Orleans was merely the instrument for what was brought about at that time. The influence that was working through her was the Christ impulse. However, there must have been a natural initiation for this, and this natural initiation would have best taken place in the thirteen nights prior to the 6th of January. The maid of Orleans must therefore have entered at some point into a kind of sleep condition during the time between 24 December and 6 January, when she would have been particularly receptive to the spiritual influence which can be present at this time. It would therefore be presupposed that the Maid of Orleans would have experienced the time from 
24 December until 6 January, in a not fully conscious state, and had thereby received the Christ impulse. Well, the maid of Orleans did experience this state of being in a very marked way. It cannot be experienced more strikingly that if one is in that sleeping condition that one is in before one's birth, in the final period that one spends as a child before birth in the body of one's mother. Outer consciousness is, of course, not capable of apprehending anything then, for it is a state of sleep. And when it is the end of the time in the mother's body, this is the most well-developed state of interuterine sleep. Now the Maid of Orleans was born on 6 January. This is the great mystery of the Maid of Orleans, that she experienced a nature initiation in the thirteen days preceding her birth. It therefore happened that on that 6th of January, when the Maid of Orleans was born, particularly sensitive people eagerly came together in the village and said that something special must have happened. They felt that something special had come into the village. The Maid of Orleans had been born, and she had undergone a natural initiation in that condition of sleep that was so significant to her, which she experienced in the last period before birth in her mother's body. This shows us that behind the threshold of what is accessible to human consciousness, spiritual beings are indeed at work beneath the threshold of this consciousness. We see from this something of the significance of a history that reckons only with what is given in documents and outer sources of information. The gods follow the course of history in a different way. They work through other means and on other paths. They place a maid of Orleans into existence, who, through her special karma, is suited for this incarnation where she is able to receive the Christ impulse and to work with it. At the appropriate time, the gods let this Christ impulse flow into human evolution. Of course, both conditions had to be fulfilled for this. The special individual karma of the maid of Orleans was an essential factor. Not every child who was born on 6 January could accomplish what she did. Thus we can indeed say that the Christ impulse has here been working in human beings through those forces that did not come to consciousness in them. Only today are we living in a time when we must consciously receive what for centuries sought to enter history by ways other than the conscious one. I wanted to arouse within you a feeling of how subconscious forces manifest themselves in a tangible way and how the kind of history that can be studied through documents and outward information has something superficial about it. It is good if, especially in our time, we can embrace such a study. For we can see that on the one hand great, mighty, and heroic events are taking place interspersed with sacrificial deeds. But we see that the magnitude of what is happening in our time is accompanied by the consequences of the most extreme materialism, with the result that there is an attempt to explain everything that takes place in our time from purely outward circumstances. This comes to expression in that one nation ascribes the blame for present events to another nation, therefore seeking to judge everything in an external way, 
by finding someone else at fault for what is happening. But the reasons for what is happening in our time lie deeply in subconscious events. We shall speak about this the day after tomorrow. Our time has a quite particular potential, also through all the blood that is being shed, to be able to alert human beings to spiritual impulses of knowledge. When peace is eventually restored to the countries currently at war with one another, people will make the discovery that wars on so mighty a scale in world history cannot be explained from outward causes. They will discover that they are unable to explain this. Today, people, especially the clever ones, are still saying that it is not appropriate to speak about everything that has caused this war. Let history give its own verdict. And they think themselves to be particularly clever when they say that only in fifty or a hundred years will history be able to give the true picture. What people call history today will never explain the causes of present events and it will come to be seen that these causes cannot be discovered from external observation. But there will be other means of help, as is shown from an occult study of our present time. What is one of the most striking phenomena of this destiny-laden time? It is, without doubt, that so many people are crossing the threshold of death when they are still young. We know what happens with a person when he passes through the gate of death, We know that, to begin with, his etheric body, astral body, and ego leave his physical body, and that after a relatively short time he casts off this etheric body and continues his further journey with an extract from it. But is it not reasonable to think that there must be a difference between an etheric body that has been cast off between the ages of twenty and thirty, which would still have been able to see to the functions of human life for decades, and an etheric body that is cast off in old age. Yes, there is a great difference. When someone dies as a result of old age or through illness, the etheric body has fulfilled its task. But in the case of a young person, of whom there are countless numbers now passing through the gate of death, the etheric body has not been able to fulfill everything that it could have fulfilled. I should now like to show you through an actual example what happens when etheric bodies are, as it were, forcibly separated from the physical body. One could, of course, give numerous examples of this. But I want to mention to you today an incident that we experienced in Dornach last autumn. We experienced this at the site where the Gertianum stands. A family living in the vicinity of the building had a little son of seven years of age, a family belonging to our anthroposophical circle. He was a very likable seven-year-old boy, a wonderful little child. He was so good that when his father was called up for military service, the little seven-year-old Teo said to his mother that he would have to work especially hard in order to help her in areas where his father would have helped her. One evening after a lecture, Someone belonging to our circle came to tell us that little Teo had been missing since that evening. Our immediate thought was that there had been some accident. Now, on that very evening, through what in outer life one calls chance, a furniture or removal van had come to a place where 
No such van had been for years, and none has been since. At a certain spot it had overturned. Little Teo had been in the small house known as the canteen because some friends of ours who are working on the building have their meals there. He would have left there earlier, but he was detained for some reason, and whereas he would normally have left through a door that would have led him to take a certain path, on this occasion he went through a different door that led him to pass by the van at the very moment when it overturned. The van fell on top of him. This is one of those examples when we can so clearly see how karma works. I have often used the simple comparison in order to show how cause and effect are frequently totally muddled up. We see someone walking along a river. Suddenly we see that he has fallen into the river. We go to the place and find a stone at the spot where it fell. The person is pulled out of the water, but he is already dead. If one does not investigate the matter further, one will recount the affair with an absolutely clear conscience as follows. The man stumbled over the stone, fell into the river, and was drowned. But one would only have to have investigated further to find that his death occurred not because he fell into the water, but that he fell into the water because he was dead. He had had a stroke. The situation is therefore the opposite of what one thinks. So you can see how easy it is to confuse cause and effect. It happens all the time in ordinary science that causes and effects are muddled up. In the present case, it does, of course, become apparent that Teo was the cause of what happened. He was the reason that the van drove past at this time. He guided it to fall on top of him. One has to keep this in mind as the solution to the mystery. But there was more to it than this. Here we have a child who dies as the result of an accident in the earliest flowering of his youth. Now, if one is united with all one's heart with the whole of the building work in Dornach, and at the same time has the possibility of observing the influences involved with this building, one can say that this etheric body that was so forcibly separated from little Teo is now in the atmosphere of the building, and one gains the most beautiful inspirational forces for the work that is connected with it by uniting one's soul with what lives in an extended form, as though enlarged into a small world in the atmosphere of the building. And I shall never hesitate unreservedly to admit that there is much of what I was able to discover at that time about our building that I owe to the fact that I directed the attention of my own soul to the etheric body of little tail that was active in the atmosphere of the building. This is how the connections in the world are made. The essential individuality of this human being goes further on its way, but the etheric body that could have supported a human life for many decades remains behind. Now, just think of the number of unspent etheric bodies that hover in the atmosphere above us and above those who will also live after us. Those etheric bodies that have remained behind derive from those who have passed through the gate of death in early life in the course of our grievous and fateful time. We are not speaking of the paths that the individualities are following. We are speaking of a special spiritual atmosphere that is created by these etheric bodies that have remained behind.
The human beings here on earth will live in this atmosphere. They will be immersed in a spiritual atmosphere which will be filled by these etheric bodies that have sacrificed their life forces specifically in order that in the present time mankind can take a step forward as a result of these events. But it will be necessary that one senses what these etheric bodies, which will be the best inspirers of future humanity, indeed want. A beautiful time of spirituality will be able to awaken if people bring understanding, an inner understanding of the heart for what these etheric bodies will want to say to them. All these etheric bodies will help toward the spiritual upsurge of the future. For this reason it is so important that there are souls that will be able to feel what is coming into the atmosphere of the future through these etheric bodies. You will not learn something about the nature of these etheric bodies only by being able to say that man consists of a physical body, etheric body, astral body, and ego, but also by knowing the secret of the influence exercised by these etheric bodies and how this influence will work on in the future. Those who already have an inclination toward the ideas of spiritual science will have prepared themselves for being receptive to what these etheric bodies want to say. If we, therefore, turn our souls to the spiritual world, we will prepare ourselves and those who will come after us to feel what the legacy, the etheric legacy of the dead, wants from the humanity of the future. If human souls will be so stirred by spiritual science that they are able to direct their spiritual awareness toward the spiritual worlds, Something great and mighty will surely spring forth as an influential power from the blood, courage, suffering and sacrifice. I should therefore like at the end of today's lecture to summarize in a few words what can now ensoul and enliven us when we focus our minds upon the great destiny-laden events of our time. Quote, from the courage of the fighters, from the blood on fields of battle, from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice, there will ripen fruit of spirit if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. Close quote. That is the end of Lecture 7.